Good afternoon to our listeners. This is the Am I Called podcast, and I'm your host, Dave Harvey. And joining us today is also Stephen L. Trogi. We always appreciate with Stephen, you can join us. Thanks for Glad joining to us be today. Here. Uh, Stephen, this is going to be an important podcast today, I think, because joining us is, is Dan Allender. And I, I first heard of Dan Allender in the world of counseling as as folks in the CCEF circles spoke of him and spoke very highly of Dan. And then I began reading some of uh, Dan Allender's writings, a book called To Be Told, uh, Leading with a Limp. And then there was a book named Bold Love, and Bold Love actually contributed in a significant way to the Prodigal's book that uh, Paul Gilbert and I wrote that was published just recently, Letting Go. So, though Dan doesn't know us, uh, like so many, we feel indebted to Dan. And uh, so, just for our listeners, so you know who, more specifically, who it is we're talking about, Dan Allender is the professor of counseling psychology, and, and he's also a former president of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. And uh, Dan's more recent ministry efforts spring from his a more recent book called Healing the Wounded Heart where Dan wants to just bring healing and hope to those who have suffered the trauma of sexual abuse. So, Dan, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. Dave, thank you. And Stephen, good to be with you as well. Mm -hmm. You too. Now, Dan, when one reads your books, they come away very aware that you have, on one hand, you're you're a man with a wealth of, of academic and counseling training, but you also have these sharp leadership instincts. You have a, you have a keen eye for, for leadership issues. So why don't you tell us a bit about your story and how God blended those qualities together in your ministry? Oh, David, that's a, that's a mouthful of a question. Uh, I think the best way to begin is um, I've never wanted to be a leader. Uh, I, I got trapped into it. Uh, it, 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 I think I learned at a very young age, especially in my family of origin, that um, being a leader is not a whole lot of fun. Uh, I had a father who was a very passive man, a mother who was a very needy, uh, at times a very difficult uh, presence in my world. And I was, as an only child, put in the responsibility, even as a six-year-old, making decisions on behalf of the family that's um, even as a six-year-old, highly inappropriate that I'm making decisions that ought to be made uh, by my parents. So I learned at a very young age, I am a leader, and that leading uh, virtually is always a, a um, not-so-lovely way to make sure that you're going to die at an early age. Uh, and so I spent many, many years <clears throat> having influence, but not wanting to lead. Um, and my long story would be that uh, we developed a school with what was uh, then called Western Seminary in Portland, uh, ended up due to all sorts of leadership crises going independent. We had to fill out forms for accreditation, including who was the president. And of the seven of us, uh, the moment that we had to fill that form out, I can recall very clearly all heads went down, which is <laughs> <laughs> you were the closest one to the form. Well, I, I, I literally, I remember sneaking my eyes up to see if anyone was going to own up that they wanted to be president. And somebody else saw me look up 
and said, you're the oldest, you're probably the best known, none of us would follow you anywhere. So I got caught. I mean, I really got caught in a leadership role. Uh, And uh, I I think there is something about being a reluctant leader, knowing at one level you don't want to, but also knowing that there is some compulsion, some um, external or internal requirement that you must fulfill if you're going to live out something of your own calling. Rather than it being an aspiration that you were kind of living into, it it was a burden that you had to assume in in weakness, it sounds like. Oh, well, very well said. Uh, aspirational leaders, uh, I think, are most often ambitious and most ambition in that regard to lead. Uh, I don't think it's a fulfillment of calling. I think it is in many ways a, a fulfillment of some level of narcissism. So, yeah, I, I, I don't trust people who want to be leaders. Now, Dan, your book, Healing the Wounded Heart, I mean, this book takes the reader into one of the darkest forms of, of fallenness, and that's just the, the, the tragedy of sexual abuse. And, and yet I, I realize that, that for, for you to write this and to write about this and to have such a, a, a deep passion to help this community, there had to be certain defining moments for you where you knew God was calling you to bring hope to those who are suffering from abuse. So, you know, what was the, what was the path there? What were the, the one or two defining moments where you knew God was calling you to do this? Well, I think similar to what uh, I just put words to with regard to reluctance, like the last thing in the universe I wanted to ever at- at- address was sexual abuse. Uh, you know, it's too negative. Um, you know, as a publisher said to me, you'll never sell more than, you know, several hundred books on this because nobody will buy a book that indicts them as possibly having been abused. Uh, so really, it was a gift of a client, really in about 1986, about four sessions in, she asked me the question what I knew about sexual abuse. And I remember, uh, you know, that kind of millisecond decision of pretending I knew more than I did. Uh, but I figured if she asked uh, I would end up being exposed even more as a liar. Uh, and so I told her, you know, I, I knew very little, uh, virtually nothing. Uh, but that's after three years of seminary, um, two years of a master's program in counseling. That's after six years in a Ph.D. program. So after, you know, considerable academic training, I didn't know anything about sexual abuse. And I thankfully told the truth. And her response was, uh, it's very clear you don't know. Um, But if you're willing to work with me, I'll teach you everything I know. And that was the beginning of a journey that uh, from about 1986 uh, up until today, um, I would not have chosen. Uh, I feel in some sense compelled to address. Some of that includes eventually having to look uh, at the reality of abuse in my own life. But I think the real dominant presence is the astronomical number of people who've been abused. We often think of this as a very tragic, but mostly rare reality. But if we begin with the presence uh, of of evil and the assumption that the return on investment uh, for doing harm through trauma to the human heart is something that literally can be done in 20 seconds to a minute, uh, can last and shadow a human heart for 
decades, if not a lifetime, it just makes sense that evil works primarily uh, through the violence of sexuality to accomplish something of its own dark intention. Now, in your travels and experience, Dan, would you say that a disproportionate amount of of leaders have experienced sexual abuse? In other words, is there anything about the enterprise of leadership, for instance, the control that it offers, that, that causes people who are sexually abused to maybe gravitate in that direction? Oh, I think so. Uh, and again, I don't have... I have more anecdotal data, but what we can begin with is um, many, many, many leaders have at least something of a narcissistic edge or streak. Uh, I mean, I don't think you can be a leader without some degree of grandiosity. So the fact is, uh, when you've got higher levels of control, manipulation, higher levels of need, uh, ambition to make something happen, uh, where you're committed to the vision, but in many ways you violate core relationships. I would say when I'm speaking in that language, the likelihood of being abused or having been abused or abusing uh, is, I think, phenomenally high. I mean, the figures, if we look at it with paper and pencil type tests where you literally get a piece of paper and answer the question, of, have you been sexually abused? Uh, the figures are about one out of every four women and about one out of every five to six men. But when you do actual interviews, um, e even brief 20, 30 minute interviews, where you have a chance not to ask it that brusquely and directly, but more along the lines of where have you felt sexually used? Uh, where have you felt sexual shame? The stories of abuse, because many of us may even have a very technical definition of abuse, very articulate, but when it gets down to our own lives, there is a broad and deep chasm between knowing the definition and being able to name events in your own life as actually abusive. Too often, uh, we look at events that may have been compromising, call them weird or strange or shouldn't have happened. I literally have a, had a uh, sex crimes detective tell me she had been molested. And when I asked her and said, you know, when were you sexually abused? Her response was, I was never sexually abused. I was molested. So we use words, we keep vague, and we speak about it, frankly, at about thirty or 40,000 feet above the reality. So yeah, I do think many people in leadership have at least, let's use this word, have significant trauma that they have not had for whatever reason, the context or courage to be able to address, especially with the effects of how that trauma affects the way they relate to others in a leadership position. So, Dan, talk about, in the example you gave, uh, just as, as an illustration where the detective is using the word molested, what is it that, that a, a, a victim is trying to protect by avoiding accurate terminology and, and that kind of discussion about it? What, what is it that's going on there in your experience? Well, what, what I tried to do in the book and in our correspondent uh, uh, online course is address the reality that evil is out to destroy faith, hope, and love. And in one sense, uh, almost all abuse, uh, probably 93%, is perpetrated by someone whom the victim knew beforehand. So there was trust. 
that was developed, which is what evil uses to in many ways ruin the capacity for faith. And evil always is working to destroy something of hope, that desire that I won't be harmed. So that experience of being powerless, uh, of being in a position where I cannot change what the abuser did or what I feel um, leaves a person in that position of in many ways being uh antithetical to both faith and hope. But the bottom, bottom line is, if we can put it this brusquely, you can't touch, literally, a baby boy of several days old or a baby girl, clitorally uh, or penially, without there being some level of arousal. And so the reality is, when we are touched, I don't care if you're two days old or 15 days old, but the reality is you're going to feel some level of sensual uh, erotic arousal. Now, when that gets combined in a four-year-old, eight-year-old, 12-year-old's heart that they're also being used and violated, there's this at least phenomena of very deep and unnamed ambivalence. So in some ways, we don't want to own what our bodies experienced, how we were used and violated how trust was broken, how hope was deadened and destroyed. So we're left in that position where we don't have the resources internally or with language to begin to address the complex inner war. Then when you have a culture, um, particularly a church culture, that can't talk about sexuality without being just freaking weird, uh, then what you're left with is I have no place, no person, no room to address all that is so complex and unnamed within me. And so we shut it down dissociatively. We shut out what we're experiencing. And then the church commends us uh, for, in one sense, not struggling, not addressing our own internal world sexually. Uh, and, uh, you know, in many ways, the church is one of the great culprits uh, for allowing abusers in its midst and outside of its midst to be able to do its harm and then simply silence the victim. Dan, one question as I'm, I'm listening to you that I wanted to ask you is, let's say a pastor hears this and says, I want to, I don't want to do that in my church. I don't want to create a, a culture where we can't talk about these things. What steps does he even begin to take? Oh, what a great question. Uh, well, it's one of the reasons why Tremper and I, Tremper Longman and I, wrote uh, a, a, initially a, a book called God Loves Sex, uh, just to, again, bring language about sexuality from Song of Songs into our conversation. So, I mean, one of the simple things you can do is stop preaching that Song of Songs uh, is anything other than a book of erotic poetry. Uh, and so as you begin to see the Bible, not only God not only loves sex, but he loves to talk about it, a whole book in the Bible on sexuality. So when we begin to language, literally affront the discomfort regarding our own and other people's sexuality, and if we can acknowledge from the pulpit that there is not a person alive who's not broken sexually, um, and, and even with a heart for holiness, a heart to design and desire the things of God, we will all struggle. So when we begin to even name it at that level, 
it becomes normalized that we can enter into sexual realities without the same level of, of shame or reluctance. The moment you do that, uh, you're going to have problems on your hands because many in the church uh, expect and demand a kind of sexless Christianity, a kind of sensual loss of life Christianity. And when that's the case, um, all I know is I couldn't be part of that church. I couldn't be part of that community. So you have to determine how much can your people bear and hear just about sexuality. And then second, can you talk about trauma? Can you talk about the reality of what it means to live in a fallen world where no one escapes harm? You know, again, there's capital T trauma, smaller T traumas, but nobody escapes living in a fallen world. And how we begin to language, what even happens to the brain in the midst of trauma becomes something that allows us to begin that process to go, well, I promise you, in a church of, you know, 200 um, hundred men, hundred women. You've got minimally um, with interview interactions about one out of three men have a history of, of abuse. Um, approximately one out of every two women have a history of abuse. So you're talking about 80 some people in your church have this experience, inviting a few people to get trained, to get more information, for small groups, for interactions in terms of scripture, study of the word. You know, when you begin to name reality, just let's enter reality, then this becomes something that is not arcane, uh, something that is only for a few. I, I had one pastor say to me, look, I, I'm I'm interested in sexual abuse and, and, and concerns, but on the other hand, I also am for bus ministries. So I'm, I'm thinking about one of these conferences, a bus ministry versus sexual abuse. Uh, and I think it's going to help my church more to go to a bus ministry. And I, I just I remember looking at him kind of like, I'm all for buses and I'm all for <laughs> ministry. Uh, but we're talking about e- evil is directly involved in the desire to subject the human heart to shame. If you're not addressing shame on a pretty regular level in the preaching and teaching of the word, not just on sexual abuse, but the role of shame in scripture is so big uh, that to not address that, I think, in some ways is to not address the reality of living in a fallen world. Dan, you you wrote a book called Leading with a Limp, and is is the trauma and the shame of of sexual abuse one of the limps that you had in view in writing that book well and thank you that that, that book really arose out of the difficulties of of all of a sudden being the president uh and even though we laughed uh and i signed my name uh when we needed to fire someone in our organization someone came to me and said you're the president you need to fire them and I looked at the person and I said, but you laughed at the thought that I was the leader. Uh, we as a group need to fire. And it's like, no, you need to fire. So all of a sudden, I'm even though I'm not the leader, I'm the leader and something has to be done. And that was the context of beginning to go. Um, I, I don't know how to do this any better than apparently Jacob did. Uh, and so in the midst of trying to grapple with what does it mean to lead well out of desire 
knowing that you, even the desire itself is what brings, in many ways, the crippling blow of God's goodness. Now, in that paradox that a leader is a servant, uh, and a servant uh, has to make decisions like, you're going to go to this flank, and I know enough about war that about 30 to 40 percent of you are going to die as I choose to tell you to go do that. I mean, again, who would want to be a leader? Um, You're sending good friends to death. Um, and yet you must do so for the cause, for the vision, and really for honor. And so that that's what I tried to put words to in terms of how do we lead out of the kind of framework that Paul speaks about in First Timothy 1, where he says, you know, here's a, a saying worthy of your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So if I'm to lead, then I'm going to have to acknowledge, and the people I lead will have to acknowledge, that there's no one more paradoxically more unfit to lead than me. And yet, I am leading. I'm called to lead. Now, how will we lead together? How will I lead at times uh, independent of those whom I'm, I'm serving uh, to do the very best I know to do uh, to honor the institution, the organization, the vision, really ultimately the kingdom of God? So that's that's the context that labor came now out of. Yeah, and and that idea is is the exact opposite of how we are oriented almost from birth to think about leadership and responsibility. You know, that it's it's supposed to be competence-based. You're supposed to be the person who is up for the job. You're supposed to lead out of your strengths and uh and then and then change takes place as a result of you applying your strengths to the weaknesses of an organization or a church. Uh, it's, 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 I don't know, a better word for it than that is of the flesh. I wonder if you, if you have the same observation that I, I, I've had, Dan, and that is that it seems like for leaders that God will often use either their marriage or their parenting to teach them weakness. In other words, to give them the limp. To teach Uh-oh. them the kind of desperation that makes the gospel absolutely magnificent. Oh, I love that. And yet, uh, as soon as you say it, uh, you know, I have memories of the time that one of my daughters got arrested uh, for having alcohol in the back of her car at a school dance. And it put us into, I mean, the heartache uh, of trying to figure out how do we live the gospel here? Um, when I'm really much more controlled by the shame she is provoked than I am for a a real hunger for, for her humility, but being led by my own humbleness. Um, yes, I don't think there's anything more important, uh, than, than what we're saying right now. Your marriage is a microcosm of the human fall. Uh, but it's also a picture of the glory of redemption. So I've spoken often in my marriage conferences about the fact that there's no relationship I'm in that gives me more of a taste of hell and certainly a more of a taste of heaven. Uh, and, and that marriage is meant to be in some sense a public display of death and resurrection. Uh, and, you know, my marriage is fragile and, and weak and strong and glorious and you know, we're a mess, but we really know joy together in being a mess. 
And so that to me is where when you lead from that framework that, no, your children are meant to be object lessons in the church. Uh, that's a, a really fabulous way to screw up your children. Uh, but on the other hand, your experience of failing as a mother or father um, has to be available with circumspection, with wisdom, sensitivity to the age of your children. Um, uh, this was years ago. My, I think at that time, 16-year-old daughter, oldest daughter, and I were doing a conference at a church, and uh, a, a woman uh, came up and just gushed to my daughter and just said, oh, my goodness, I want— your father has been so important to me. And what a joy. Oh, what a joy it must be to have your father as a father. She kept going on and on and on. And finally, my oldest daughter looked at her and just said, well, I want you to know at times he's a shit. Now, I'm not sure <laughs> on your podcast, but that's what she said. And the woman, I, I seriously, I thought her jaw was going to... Uh, become a maw open to swallow humanity. You know, and all I can say to my daughter afterwards is, uh, thank you for having restraint. Um, you know, to compare me to fertilizer is actually a wonderful thought that maybe, maybe something of my, you know, miscreant heart can at times create goodness uh, and grow things. Uh, I, that's what we need is the ability not just to swear, but to have the ability um, to know the humility that even our own children have to survive in trying to somehow find their way in the midst of Christian communities. So, yeah, I could not agree more. Well, she, she was the more theologically rooted one in that conversation. Rooted. <laughs> 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 Very rooted and, in some sense, with far better um, – uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? With, with a kind of life-giving presence that the roots that she had will bring and do bring uh, great fruit. You know, we kind of jumped over to, to leadership, Dan, but it, it occurs to me that Stephen asked the question for pastors, and, and you were given some really helpful counsel on what pastors could do, but I – I think we should probably speak also to just listeners that have suffered through some kind of, of trauma. And, and maybe, they're, maybe they're displaying the symptoms, but they don't even connect the symptoms uh, to, to, to the feelings or the behavior um, of, of the past. And so how does somebody know or, or what's, what should somebody do if they're dealing with the collateral damage of, of, of the trauma of, of sexual abuse? You know, what are some practical steps? And if you produced anything, you know, we talked about your book, but I know you have other materials. Well, I'd love to hear about that too. Yeah, thank you. Well, the first is you got to admit uh, that in some ways the cure feels worse than the disease because uh, many of these events happened 20, 30, 40 years ago, and you've done well. You've survived. You've you have a family, you've continued to pursue God. Um, so it's almost like, well, why, why do I want to dig up something like that? And part of my answer simply is, well, you don't have to dig it up. It's been living in your body. It's been living through your relationships. It's living in your brain. So trauma doesn't go away. 
It simply gets metabolized in a way in which we structurally uh, find ways to defend and protect ourselves from it rather than indeed opening our heart really to the central work of the cross and the resurrection. So my, my premise is um, this is the work of redemption. It's the work of sanctification. It's the work of growing to become like Jesus. And wherever there's something hindering me, um, I'm meant to throw it down and, and in many ways run with freedom. So th- that's one of the reasons we did the book. Um, we do have an online course, uh, you know, our, our site, theallendercenter.org. Um, we've got an online course that basically takes people through um, nine nine lessons, but more important than just my teaching, uh, it, we invited six people who have histories of abuse to narrate their own story, to narrate their experience with shame, with dissociation, with addiction, um, with perfectionism, to tell the story of, of a life affected by abuse. And I think that probably connects with most people and frankly is a, a great leadership tool um, for pastors to at least get that first level of knowledge to know what am I up against? You know, if I pray, what am I praying for? Um, the particularity and specificity of understanding the damage of abuse requires our entry into things like how does faith get ruined through uh, an abuser's grooming? If you don't understand the concept of grooming, uh, your prayers will not be as directly powerful as they're meant to be. Knowing something about the role of shame and what we do with shame, why shame is there in the human heart. When you're the victim, how come you feel shame over the crime perpetrated against you? We've got to have language for that. And that's why uh, the video, uh, the online course, the materials with regard to workbooks, um, again, anyone who wants to pursue this, and that's really the first issue. Um, how do you get a human heart that knows there has been harm, but yet lives really a good life, um, get invested to turn back to address that harm in order to create for themselves and for their future uh, a, a very different way of living? So I think the only answer to that is that when you get caught, when your son or daughter gets abused, when you begin to realize that the sexuality between you and your spouse is not and has never been as free, as delightful, joyful, and you begin to go, uh, well, maybe uh, the event you told me about, but we've never talked about between you and your uncle when you were nine years of age, could it possibly have a, a detrimental effect even 30, 40 years later. And I'm hoping that most people will have enough courage to be able to say, yeah, this is the work of God to bring redemption. Dan, I'm going to make this my my last question, and uh, I'm going to expand it out a little bit beyond abuse and go back to pastors. And, and my question is just when you have an opportunity to to teach pastors or sit with pastors, what are some of the primary burdens on your heart that you always want to convey? You always want to make sure that they're walking away with. Wow, that's again, such a sweet question. You know, maybe the first is, especially, um, you know, I I go to a a Presbyterian church in America. I've been uh, ordained in the PCA. You know, most of my good friends uh, are, in, in one sense, uh, in the reformed world, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, 
epistemological humility uh, is uh, something that we ought to crave uh, and pray for uh, and solicit uh, among uh, our community. Um, and all I mean by that at this point is uh, we seem to be bright and know a lot, uh, but hopefully uh, the awareness that you are bright and you know a lot ought to take you to the awareness that you're a beginner, uh, always a beginner, always having to relearn, to reengage, you know, that sola reformata. Um, uh, you are always in the process uh, of becoming and re-becoming who you were meant to be. So in that sense, to not be ashamed to say, uh, you know, in some ways, I feel like I've come to know Jesus in the last year or two. Um, well, didn't you know him before? Yeah, I did. But I know him now in ways in which I wish, I long that I would have known him today as I wrote the the book Wounded Heart 25 years ago. And the Jesus I know that I that that I was engaged in in writing this 25 year retrospective called Healing the Wounded Heart. Um, I, I can't go back and change, but what I can do is glory in the work of redemption that allows for a kind of renewal and newness. If there's not newness, a sense of sweet newness to the life that you're living, um, you're already set up for you know, the burden of burnout, the exhaustion of what ministry tends to, to create. And so I think a second thing is, look, conflict is inevitable. And, and you need to grow your capacity to be in conflict. Uh, and for often, we don't know how to deal with people who are contemptuous, who are desperate, um, whose narcissism in many ways disrupts our own. So just that you know, if you're not growing in newness and you're not in many ways becoming more courageous in humility to address and face conflict, then I, I know you're not open to failure. And I don't think there's any gift more important for a pastor than the freedom to know that you can fail, you will fail, and it's actually part of your calling to fail. And so learning how to manage your own um, your own uh, the, the sacrifices you make without becoming entitled, the, the, the desire dreams that become expectations that move to demands, being able to dislodge those so that you are free, freer to fail. So, I mean, probably what I'm moving toward entirely is that you anticipate joy and the joy is actually part of your day. You know, your marriage bears joy. Your interaction with your children bears joy. I'm not denying heartache, suffering, death. But I'm also saying without joy, I don't know how it is that any of us remain perseverant, faithful, but also open to that relearning, learning process. So if, if, if a man or woman can engage those categories and then ask, what's hindering? What's slowing me down? What of my past, my present, my future is in many ways a, a log that I've not begun to take out, then, then let's therapeutically, let's in conversation prayer, uh, whatever means by which we have, can we begin to open your heart to a new level of joy in the freedom of what the resurrection brings? And that's what I believe uh, I, I want for myself. I certainly want it for the people I'm privileged to work with. Well, Dan, this has been, I think, an extremely helpful and significant conversation for some of our listeners. So, and I want to thank you for 
joining us. And thank you for investing the time to write the books that you write, because I think it's, it's a great help to the body of Christ. Thank you. I, I'm not only appreciative, but simply grateful that you are speaking to, to human hearts and probably young human hearts who are engaged uh, in one of the most precious and important works of God, and that is church planting. So my honor to be with you. And Dan, if someone wants to track the things that you're writing and thinking, could you repeat the, the website that we can direct them to? Yeah, uh, it is the, T-H-E, Allender, A-L-L-E-N-D-E-R, uh, the allendercenter.org. And uh, we're connected with the Seattle School, and so that would just be the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Those are the two entry points on the wonderful World Wide Web uh, to make contact. So for our listeners, check that out. And uh, just a reminder that this podcast is part of a suite of services from amicall.com. So you can go there and you can, you can click on and you can see dozens and dozens of articles and podcasts with folks like David Powelson, Andy Crouch, Mike Horton, Randy Alcorn, just a host of other people. Also, one of the newest additions is our Next Steps course. That's an online leadership development program that's loaded with new content and video and stuff that that we haven't put anywhere else. So I hope you check that out. And uh, if you're listening and you've you've enjoyed the podcast today, give us a positive review on iTunes and, and let somebody know about it. But most importantly, thanks for joining us today on the Am I Called podcast.